want to just mention that last Sunday, Loreen Lindsay passed away. Uh, she had gotten sick in the last few months and uh, was steadily going downhill after an injury and, uh, and is now with the Lord. And she was a longtime member of this church. Some of you may recognize the name. Um, they're going to be having a small service in uh, northeastern Washington, uh, probably in June sometime. But Roberta, her daughter, just wanted us to announce that she had passed and uh, to be praying for the family. Last September, I had the experience as school was starting and whatnot of talking to some parents about sending their kids off to school, especially those who were sending them off to kindergarten kind of the first time, getting on the bus and whatnot. And I got some flashbacks of sending DJ, our firstborn, to school. And I sobbed miserably, and it was heartbreaking for me. It would have been good if DJ had at least shown a little bit of reluctance, but no, she was glad to be going. It was very tough on Dad. And the next thing you know, I'm walking her down the aisle to marry Richard, and boy, life goes so fast. And now I've got four grandkids. What a blessing. But my little girl, my little DJ. And the next thing, you know, is life is just moving on. Parents have these mixed feelings that they go through because on the one hand, we understand that the kids must go to school. We understand that's a rite of passage that, uh, that takes place for all of our children. Uh, but there's also the other side where it's my job to protect her, to protect my children. And how am I going to carry that out when she's not there beside me? And today we continue our series of true discipleship and our adventure in Mark's gospel. And Jesus is just beginning his ministry. Uh, but before he can begin his ministry, it's back to school. It's back to school. Let's pray and invite God into our conversation. Lord God, as we open your word this morning, may you speak to our hearts. Teach us how to follow you more closely and to be your disciples. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Last week, as you recall, we had a guest speaker here, John the Baptist, shared with us uh, the first part, the introduction to this book. Nice to be back with you, but I heard he did a pretty fair job of presenting the text. And John the Baptist told us last week that he was pointing the way, he was to prepare the way for one who was to come after him. And in verse 9, enter Jesus. All Mark says is, Jesus came. No Christmas story. There was no little boyhood stories. There were no warnings, no genealogies. Jesus just came. There he is. And the action begins. You kind of get the feeling, roll him as we're get, trying to catch up with all the action that is happening so quickly. So Jesus came, and then we read in verse 9 that he was baptized. And as he was coming out of the water, the heavens were torn apart. The heavens divided. And the Greek word there literally is to be ripped, uh, to tear. It's not just kind of a whisking the clouds to the side and making a little opening, you know, so that the dove can descend. Uh, this was uh, ripped apart. The skies were literally torn asunder. Imagine it. This happening, this spectacle, this incredible event ripped apart. Ponder that word for a moment. Does it sound familiar? 
The only other place that Mark uses this particular verb is in the end of the book, in chapter 15, uh, verse 38, when it says that the veil of the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom, split apart. And that's kind of a wonderful image to have it at the beginning and at the end of Jesus' ministry. You have God because there's no other logical explanation for how the heavens could have been torn apart or the veil of the temple could have been humanly torn apart. And God is breaking down all the barriers that separate us from Him. God is breaking through. Beginning to end, God is for us. Then God's voice breaks through in verse 11. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In whom I am very pleased. Is there a single child, and all of us were children at one time or another, and most of us men still are, Is there a single one of us who wouldn't love to hear those words from our parents? You are my beloved child. With you, I'm well, well pleased. Note, when does this take place in the story? This event of the heavens opening up and God's voice speaking this beautiful affirmation to his one and only Son. How much ministry has Jesus done at this point? Nada. Zilch. Zippo. Nothing has happened yet. And yet God says, I love you. You please me. And here we have in these first few verses, in 7 through 11, the call to ministry of Christ. The initiation of his ministry among humankind. And so let me ask you, what was the purpose of Jesus' baptism? You ever pondered that? What was the purpose of that baptism? What did John tell us last week that his baptism was for in verse 4 of Mark 1? It says it was for the repentance of our sins, to come back to God, to be sorrowful for what we had done wrong and seek to live differently. And did Jesus have any sin? No. Jesus was sinless. So, why this baptism? And if you read the commentators, you'll get a variety of points of view and perspective, all sorts of ideas of why this might be. Let me give you one. This was Jesus' point of decision. This was the moment that Jesus had been preparing for. This moment, and surely he sensed what his destiny was. While Mark doesn't record it, Luke's gospel records a story of his boyhood when he's 12 years old. And he's in the temple, in essence, instructing the scribes and the Pharisees of the day and the people that were in attendance as he shared God's word. Jesus knew that his time had come and John said that there was one coming and Jesus came and the sky ripped apart and the dove and the power of the Holy Spirit descended upon Christ and then God's affirming words, a call to ministry. This was his point of decision. Shakespeare, in one of his books, wrote, There is a tide in the affairs of men when taken at the flood leads us to fortune, avoided leads us to shallows and misery. Uh, One of my favorite movies was the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks. And he and Wilson are on this island. Remember Wilson? And they're on this island, and he makes two attempts to try to get off the island. The first one fails miserably, and he's so defeated, and the raft that he built was all shattered and so on. But then he builds another one, 
And this time, the tide was right. And he was able to ride out from the grip of that island and to be free. Brothers and sisters, there is not a single Christian who has not received the call of God. Every single Christian, every single person in relationship with their creator God is called by him to minister for him. Now, some of us put that call on hold. We don't want it right now. We don't want to hear about it. We don't want to be bothered with it or distracted by it. Some may blame it on bad reception or roaming charges. Some let the message machine screen all of their lives, including God and God's call. And some are just never home when Christ calls. The first call of God is that of salvation, of calling us into relationship with him, which we do by receiving Christ into our lives. How many times did God have to call you for that salvation call before you finally picked up and answered, before you finally texted him back? The next call of God is, well, when he empowers our spiritual gifts, our resources, our talents, and our abilities that each one of us has, then he calls us to play a part in that greater cause of his kingdom of sharing good news with others and so on. How many of us, when God calls and the tide is right, falter? We're uncertain or doubting or questioning or timid or fearful or we just bail and we miss the voyage of a lifetime. What is God calling you to? What is God calling me to? So Jesus accepts his call to ministry, and so what's next? Maybe a mini tour of Galilee and get up his preaching skills and so on? Uh, Or maybe a little bit of healing and so on? Certainly enough need for that all around the place. Uh, What could be done to jumpstart Jesus' call? The second thing we see in verses 12 and 13 is the crisis. The crisis moment. He's received his call, but then comes this crisis. And Mark uses the word euthus, which is translated straightway or immediately. And this is the first time he uses it, but it will not be the last. The Holy Spirit sends Jesus out into the wilderness. Come again? Come again? Hey, you just got anointed for this job. You just got baptized. You're spirit-empowered. The Heavenly Father has affirmed you. And he goes, where? To the wilderness? To the desert? You've got to be kidding. Jesus doesn't even have a moment to relish his mountaintop experience, that wonderful touch of his heavenly Father. Euthus, straightway, into the wilderness. Literally in the Greek, it means to be driven, to dr- uh, to be, uh, and the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. It's also translated to thrust forth, to expel, to drive out. Couldn't Mark have picked a different phrase to use? You know, maybe something like the Spirit wooed him out into the wilderness or, or encouraged him to go out into the wilderness or coaxed him or prodded him or suggested or drew him into the wilderness or led him and so on. The list goes. But that's not what it says. Literally, the Spirit drove him that's not in a car, out into the wilderness. And 
you know, we wouldn't know some of what happened in this story if it wasn't for Matthew and Luke's accounts, both of them in chapter 4 of each book, the first uh, 13 verses. But Mark's point is that Jesus went from call to crisis. And here's what we do know from Mark. Let me read for you verses 12 and 13 again. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. That's it. Driven out, tempted and tested by Satan for 40 days, animals and angels attending to him. It reminds me of the story of Daniel and lion's den, as those, uh, those lions were held at bay, and here the animals out in the wilderness are there with him, ministering to him. Back to school. The wilderness is a symbol of back to school, boot camp, training, of getting us prepared, getting us ready. I can remember when I was a professor at Trinity Lutheran College, my students would so often, especially in their senior year, but really all four years, wonder why in the world am I going to sit here in a classroom learning and hearing Goodwin share? Uh, why can't I be out there doing it? That's what I really want to do. That's what I went into this for. Forty days or forty years, both of those phrases used often in scriptures, is a long time. Basically, it just means a long season. And this was God's training laboratory. We read about Noah and the ark, and the rain fell for forty days and forty nights. We read about Moses being prepared in Pharaoh's court. He didn't know what for. And then Moses sins and is exiled to the wilderness for forty more years of preparation. And then finally, Israel gets free, but then spends 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. The wilderness. Elijah on Mount Horeb for 40 days. And what it would have meant to the Jews of that day to hear that Jesus was tested for 40 days. These thoughts, these memories, these reflections would have come back and they realized that this is part of God's preparation for us. There's no doubt that Satan loves to move in on a person who has just had a mountaintop experience. And he wants to squelch that energy, wants to squelch that zeal, that enthusiasm before it can take root, before it can become a new way of living for our God. On Easter Sunday, we had four people that gave their life to Christ for the first time. We had 37 people recommit. Satan wants to bombard those people right away to neutralize them. To get them to think it's not such a big deal. You come home from something like Chick, a high school event where about 6,000 young people get together from all over the globe to have this wonderful time of praise, and the kids come home from Chick just all fired up. They are wired. They want to make a difference in their world. Does Satan want to bring about a crisis to distract them from their call? Yeah, sure, you betcha. That's what he's about. So where's God? Why wouldn't God's Spirit drive Jesus out into the wilderness, into the desert? Why after camp or chick or women of faith or promise keepers or marriage enrichment retreats or men's life or VBS, do we slip so easily back into those ruts of the old patterns, the old way of living? Why does the Holy Spirit allow this? Because it is in those times of questioning, it is in those times of testing, of attacks, of trials and temptations that kingdom workers are trained and toughened 
for the call that each of us has to serve our God. It's a little bit like marriage. You go through the first stage of marriage, we call it a honeymoon, because it's sweet and sticky. And then you go from that into the first year of marriage in which many patterns are established, good or bad. One of the things I've done over my 40-plus years of ministry as I've done weddings and working with couples is a three-month, a six-month, and a one-year follow-up during that first year of marriage. Because if we can get them to establish good habits, then they will have a much more successful and much more satisfying marriage relationship uh, to pursue. And it says in our text, the angels ministered, diaconon, they diacononed Jesus, they deaconed Jesus, caring for him during that time, during that season. And the Lord promised each one of us, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. And so that leads to the third thing that I observe in our text in verses 14 and 15, and that's the confirmation. Okay, we had the call, there's the crisis point and the boot camp training and so on, and then there's the confirmation, the time has come. John's message gets interrupted. It's incomplete. Jesus is the rest of the story. Jesus and the goodness that he demonstrates and models, that's the message, the punchline. And I believe that this cycle of call and crisis and confirmation is common. This isn't just for pastors and missionaries, by the way. This is for every single Christian, everyone who's given their life to Christ. We as a church have experienced several times in our 135-plus year history when we've gone through seasons of testing, our 40 days and 40 nights. The last three to four years has been a time that has stretched us. It's been a boot camp. It's been preparing us for something. And I want you to ask yourselves the question, Will you trust God? Will you trust God with your future, with the church's future, and how God may want to use us? I believe that we're going to see God use us and do things through us and with us that we never thought possible, never even imagined before, because we let him take us back to school. In John's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 33, it says, In this world, you will have troubles. But fear not, for I have overcome the world. Will we live that promise of God out? Let's pray. Lord, may we not resist your efforts to school us, to refine us, to toughen us up. As you make us into the persons, as you make us into the church that you want us to be, we long to be used by you, Lord, to bring a rich harvest for you in your name. We pray this in your strong name. Amen.